Hi, and welcome to Y2K Group Chat. This is a series about how artists navigate through their practice and a behind-the-scenes look into their lives. Y2K Group is an art agency and advisory focused on supporting emerging artists in New York and beyond. Marine St. Vincent is an emerging artist based in the Bay Area. She received an MFA from Hunter College in New York. Recent exhibitions include Eartha, Adams and Ullman, Portland, Oregon, The Essential Good Show, Fisher Parish Gallery, Brooklyn, Moro Modanas, SLO Museum of Art, San Luis Obispo, California, Mushrooms, Y2K Group Pop-Up, New York, Seriality, Crush Curatorial, New York, Oobs, Underdong, Brooklyn, Fata Morgana, curated by Y2K Group, 77 Mulberry, New York, Seafood Stew, Y2K Group Pop-Up, Maspa. The following podcast was recorded in late May 2020. Enjoy. Hello. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Maureen. It's going well. Hi, Miguel. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you guys? I'm doing well. Yeah, Thank we're good. You. Yeah. Are we being recorded right now? Are we back? I don't know. Uh, yes, yeah, recording now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll watch what I say. So are you guys in your apartment? We are. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to be doing this. Well, I'm happy to participate. Thank you. Great. If we could just start off, how has the pandemic affected your work and your life? Well, when the pandemic first started, when you have an infant, you don't do much. You're limited to your You're limited to their nap schedule and what, you know, your radius is just becomes very tiny in terms of how you move around. And um, you basically are home a lot. So in terms of like my personal life, there hasn't been that big of a shift. Um, I would say that my world got small when I had a child and now it's just smaller but in terms of my practice, that changed dramatically because I was no longer allowed to go to my studio building in San Francisco. They shut mm-hmm. it down. Oh, wow. So, and we live in a one-bedroom apartment. So there's not a lot of space here. So my new studio is um, consists of the kitchen table and a supply box that I kind of move around the house. <laughs> it's like a little plastic box that I keep all my supplies in. And Daniel, my husband, has made some sort of cardboard envelope for my paper. So uh, uh-huh. whenever uh-huh. I'm ready to make something, I clear off the kitchen table. I bring out my supplies, which are minimal, and I use that time and space to make. And it's worked somehow. That's amazing. Wow. Thank you. Wow. And in terms of how, like how often I make work, I make work probably every day and I do it when, or I make work or I make drawings or whatever I'm working on when uh, my husband takes the baby for a walk in the afternoon. So I have about 45 minutes a day. Wow. <laughs> so I like yeah, everything you've seen me make during this during the last couple months has been like really incremental. It's just like small little chunks of time. I've been chipping away at these drawings or projects. And I've never worked like that before. 
Um, so that's been an interesting transition and I'm proud of myself because I'm able to do it somehow. Even if I'm exhausted, I just make myself do it because I'm desperate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm desperate to still be an artist and to make work right now, you know? Yes, that's amazing. Uh, do you feel like since you only have 45 minutes or around that time to uh, work on your art, do you feel like you have more time to think about what you're doing uh, before you show up to practice? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I often daydream or about my work. And when I was living in New York, I would daydream about paintings on the subway. They would just kind of pop in, like visions of idea, of pictorial space or compositions or color choices would just kind of pop in my head. I wouldn't necessarily be thinking about my practice, but I would just be drifting off on the subway and I'd start seeing new paintings. Uh, and I was the first on the subway for some reason who never listened to any music or podcast playing. I just would sit there and stare at everybody and zone out. Um, and now that I'm in California in car culture, I tend to think about work when I'm driving. And now that I'm not driving very much um, because of the shelter in place order, um, I daydream when I'm pushing the stroller around the neighborhood about new work. So yeah, I'm constantly thinking about what, because of that time, that limitation of time, that 45 minutes check in time that I have, um, I have to mentally kind of prepare before I sit down to make. So I try to spend, I try to like carve out that time to think about it uh, when I'm pushing the stroller. <laughs> it's not, it's, it doesn't naturally come when I'm pushing the stroller for some reason. It does in the car or the subway. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of during the day carving out chunks of time to, to, to think. So when I sit down, I'm ready to make some moves with the drawings is it the same scale when you're making the works oh no yeah so everything has changed uh, making smaller drawings i want to say 11 by 14 i don't rem- remember um i'm using colored pencils versus soft pastels okay mm-hmm. at home which i was reluctant to start using because they're frustrating in the sense that it takes a long time to build mm-hmm color or it takes a long time to cover ground and they're not very forgiving where with soft pastels you can easily just smudge it away or wipe it away with colored pencils it's more permanent so it's made me kind of slow down which has been interesting I it's it the work feels more delicate and slowed down and controlled and I wouldn't say that's how I usually work with soft pastels. So right. it's like a totally different mode. How do you usually work with soft pastels? I did notice that a lot of your work uses soft pastels and um, oil. So just kind of wanted to understand like that transition with between those mediums. Yeah, with soft pastels, it's a lot more, it's like dirtier because you've got pastel dust flying everywhere I'm mixing directly onto on the page I'm mixing my colors on the page Um, I'm using my fingers to smudge and smear and move the material around 
So there's a lot of touch involved. The drawings are usually larger. I draw on the wall. Um, I Before I make a final drawing, I spend a lot of time with black chalk and newsprint, just sketching, and those are really free and fast and gestural. So there's a there's time to kind of mess around before I approach the final drawing. And right now with my colored pencil practice, I don't have time to kind of mess around. So I guess everything feels tighter, more precise. I think a lot more about what I'm going to do before I draw it. Um, versus pastels, I tend to, the paper I use is not so, it's it's nice, it's archival, but it's not expensive. So if I start a drawing, I don't like it, I just throw away the paper and move on. So I guess it's, um, I'm a little bit more uh, wild with the soft <laughs> pastels <laughs> and messy. And with the colored pencils, you can't really get messy. Right. Yeah. It's kind of, it's so dry. Um, it's so dry and so light in value a lot of the time. And so it just takes a lot more time to build with the soft pastel. The reason why I love soft pastels is because they're so rich. They're so saturated. And in, once you put it down on the paper, you can just smear it around and it, it just is it's vibrant. And then with the color pencils, it takes a lot of time to create that vibrancies. Um, so, yeah, it's a completely different process. It sounds much more challenging. <laughs> it is. It's more <laughs> tedious. And I, it's more tedious. And I would consider myself an extremely impatient person and artist. Um, that was one of the criticisms I got from my professors at Hunter College. Oh. Um I, yeah, they were frustrated with me because I wanted to get to a place, but I didn't really want to do the work. Uh, so I would, <laughs> like, I would like, yeah, I would, you know, take some shortcuts and they would call me out and I, I just, I'm not a patient person. So I'm, I'm maybe motherhood has made me patient and I'm, I'm working with these color pencils with patience. So I think maybe that has something to do with it. How many, um, colored pencil works do you work on at a time or is it kind of just you work on one and then the next day you move on to another one or you might come back to it you know what I work on one at a time right now because of the space the this t table I'm working on is quite small um but then I have this tiny little sketchbook where I'm sketching ideas for the next painting or the next drawings while while I'm working on one drawing so I'm always thinking ahead the colored pencils are you um envisioning them with the frames that you make yeah i am the problem with the frames right now is the wood shop is closed because it's out of middle school in santa clara i can't access the wood shop and my teacher is not teaching right now and so i'm not able to make new frames which is anxiety inducing for me because it's a huge part of my work so I am planning on framing the colored pencil drawings, but for now I'm just going to make them and deal with the framing later because there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> I can't take action unless I, you know, create my own wood shop, which I cannot do. So yeah, I do envision them having a home and a frame. And the frames themselves, um, I was just wondering how do you come up with like the style of the frame for each piece? They're also very uh, 
like the curvature of the frames and the the pastel color of the frames. I think there's a couple that you've used just like wood. And I'm just really curious about like what what you, the, the the decision process is behind uh, creating those. Yeah, um, it's kind of all over the place because sometimes I go into the wood shop having drawings that I've already made and needing to make frames for them. So when that happens, I ha- it's more planned out where the drawing informs the shape of the frame. And so I, I like to think of the idea of the drawings, the forms within the drawings being this kind of insidious force that changes the shape of the wood. Um, and so I want them to really respond to each other and become one. So that's the goal when I come into the wood shop and I have drawings that are made that are ready to be framed. But when I go into the wood shop and I don't have any drawings ready to be framed, I just make the frames and then the drawings come later. So it goes both ways and they're different. I mean, those are the outcomes. I don't know how different they are. Uh, I guess I could go into my studio and and think about, you know, what frames were made before the drawings were created and uh, made after the drawings were created. But yeah, I I do it both ways. And I want to say when I make frames for drawings that don't exist yet, I tend to maybe take a little bit more risks with the shape or what I'm going to do to the frame because it becomes about the frame itself. And I kind of challenge uh, the teacher I'm working with and we, we try to take it to the next step. For example, recently I started to add more three-dimensional objects on, onto the frames um, and we've, figure out ways to like screw like these things like for example a ball shape that I could uh, attach and then remove because it has a screw at the end of it and um, this is something that I figure out alongside or with the teacher who's a master woodworker and we're trying to figure out solutions to how I can make frames that won't break when I ship them and how I could you know if I don't want this additive feature anymore how I can remove it and then use the frame in a different way I also have to say that I used to work with an older man as you guys remember right right yeah Yeah. he was like in his mid-80s I'm no longer working with him because he had an accident he chopped off his fingers or a couple of his fingers in the wood shop which was very sad because we we created this really special bond over the last several years and he helped me make most of my frames that you guys are familiar with. So now I'm working with his son-in-law. So the advantage of that is um, where he's younger and can see better <laughs> and is more of a perfectionist. And so I'm able to kind of take the frames and push them to a more refined, I would say, level now with this person. So that's exciting. I do miss Ward, but there's new things are happening it's interesting to work with these men in the woodshop because they have no idea what the subject matter of the work is about. <laughs> and I think that's kind of fun. It's like funny for me. It's funny because I'm making this like erotica, these erotica drawings and they're based in ideas of feminism and femininity and all that. And they're just 
they don't even care. Like, they're just like, we're going to make this frame and it's going to be perfect and beautiful and it's going to function and it's going to be strong. And all they care about is it's like strength and functional and it's function. And it's just, uh, it's very matter of fact. And I like that, that contrast of, you know, the, the work and then the environment I am in when I make the frames for, for the, for the drawings. When did you first start making the frames? Your past work was, was painting and then you're doing pastel. And then what made you decide to move into actually making the frames for the pastel pieces? I would have lots of studio visits with friends. They come to my studio and over and over again, I would hear, I really like your drawings, which is like something a painter does not want to hear. It's irritating. Mm -hmm. But I had several friends come in and convince me, you know what? They said, hey, Maureen, just, just make a final drawing. You know, just treat your chalk as your medium and make a final drawing just this once. And I was like, really? I said, yeah, I really think you should do that. So I did it. And I haven't stopped since. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to my friends, uh, usually the ones I trust. So I'm glad they gave me good advice. Um, so I started making these soft pastel drawings and it was really freeing. And I, I feel like I have a command over the medium that I enjoy. Painting is harder in general and it's just harder for me. And like I said, I'm really impatient. Um, so that's why I think my painting suffered. But with drawing, I, I can be impatient and still make really to make strong work. Uh, so it works for now. And I wanted to start showing the work. And I realized I need to frame them because soft pastels are very futile. I mean, they like fly off the page. It's just, it's a dry medium. They, if they aren't protected by glass, eventually, I mean, anyone could just like walk by a drawing and actually bump into it and smear it off. So they're really vulnerable. They're very, very precious and vulnerable. So I needed to figure out a way to preserve them, hang and, and be able to install them and, so I started making these kind of standardized frames with my friend Rotem, who's uh, an amazing artist and sculptor, and we were making frames together. And they were pretty classic in the sense that they just, their function was to hold the painting. They didn't have any decorative elements. Um, and then I had a studio visit with Nicole Caruso. I don't know if you guys know her. And she started talking about the frames in a way that changed my mind about how they should function. She suggested that they become decorative or become part of the drawing. And I think she was responding to one move I had made in one of the more um, reserved frames in the beginning where I had like painted the side of it. It was creating this luminosity and, she was suggesting, she suggested that I maybe push those ideas further. And then I, from there, I've just been continuing to treat them as kind of sculptural objects. And there's so much potential and opportunity there. And I just keep pushing this, this idea of, kind of breaking the rectangle with a frame. It's endless. Absolutely. I actually wanted to hear more about your thoughts on like your work being, um, like you know feminism like the like your if there is a feminist approach to them um if you don't mind speaking about that a little bit yeah I think the one of the first soft pencil drawings I made 
you guys are familiar with. It's the one called Candle Erotica. Oh, yeah. And it's those disembodied legs with candles going through the vulvas. So I think the the idea of the feminine form entered my work as a way for me to avoid the whole figure. I wanted to start drawing the figure again because I was referencing feminine experience. I want to say my feminine experience because not everyone has the same feminine experience through abstractions or through paintings that felt a little bit more conceptual and they were about storytelling, but you would never, and they were about characters, but you would never see the character in the, in the paintings. And then I kind of got sick of doing that and I wanted to bring the figure into the work, but I didn't want to bring that entire figure into the work. I wanted to like chop up the body. I wasn't interested in painting a face or dealing with a whole figure. So I just created this form that looked like uh, disembodied legs. And within those legs, there's the vulva area. And I became obsessed with that vulva shape and those legs and what they could do and how they could um, kind of free free us or free free me from having to draw an entire body and they kind of started to represent this idea of um leaving one's own body and having out-of-body experiences and and then I started thinking about like pleasure and play how women can please themselves and they don't need to have anyone else pleasing them and it was more it's more about this idea of like liberation and then humor plays an important role in my work. I like to bring ideas of like the feminine and humor together because I think what humor can do, I think humor has the power to kind of subvert the status quo because when you point at something and you kind of laugh with it um, or laugh at it in a way, you're pointing it out and then you can kind of subvert its original meaning. So, uh, I don't know if I'm making sense right now, but I, I yeah, like I the so. idea of Definitely. like bringing um, femininity, humor, surrealism is a way to kind of access the sensual world. And uh, I don't, there are not that many recognized surreal female surrealists. I mean, there are some, but not many. I mean, they're getting obviously a lot of, um, I think people are starting to look at them in a deeper way now. And they're gaining popularity, but in general, pretty obsolete, right? Or they're just obscure if they did exist, surrealists, uh, female surrealists. So I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to explore surrealism as a, as a female. And um, I think there's a direct connection between surrealism and eroticism and sensuality that I think because it's a way to access a world that is beyond the, the physical world that we see it around us. And it creates a space for imagination and other ways of being that I think relates to, you know, sensuality and sexuality and, and what those things can look like in a different form. Yes. Last year you were in a residency at Cooper union and around that time, or, or just before, you found out that you were pregnant. So mm -hmm. how did that um, change your perspective on your surrealist work? Yeah, I, I 
thought it would be a great idea to add a pregnant belly on top of these disembodied leg forms that I keep using in my work and I've been using for several years as a stand-in for the female form or the female experience. So I thought it was kind of, I think it's kind of taboo to think about a pregnant woman feeling sexy or having sex or being wanted if she's like carrying a child. I mean, like some people don't find that sexy, right? I mean, it just seems a little bit taboo to even talk about it. Um, Pregnancy and sexuality or pregnancy and sex. So I thought it would be um, a little bit antagonistic and also celebratory to draw pregnant erotic forms so in the new series was pregnant or pregnant erotica um and I had a lot of fun with that because I was making these drawings of a pregnant belly as I had a you know as I was going to baby in my belly and it was just this really uh like a direct you know my direct experience just going on the page and when I was making these drawings you know baby would move around and it was just really beautiful um to have that experience to be at a residency pregnant in New York, going back to New York was really important to me this summer or last summer and making work about what I was going through. I mean, it's, it's such a transformation being pregnant and I feel like pregnancy, getting pregnant, having a baby is a lot like it's a, it's a different type of creative process, but it's very similar to, to the art, you know, my creative process or a creative process in the way that, you know, it starts off with an idea. You want to have a baby. Then it's, you don't see the thing. You just start thinking about it. It's then it starts to grow inside of you. Things are kind of mixing up and brewing in there. And then you have the baby and it's in front of you and it's this physical thing. It's a lot like making something, you know, you start off with an idea, you make, some sketches you bring some materials together things start coming together and then you make this physical object your final object um and then this object now has its life a life of its own and the baby is i'm learning from the baby like i often learn from my work after i've made it and it's been sitting in the studio or it's been around for a long time i revisit it and it's, it's teaching me or it's i'm learning from it and it has its own life so those things are very, I'm finding out that it's, it's, there's a lot of familiarity already in the process of motherhood from being an artist. Yeah. (laughs) That's not funny. That's not funny. Where's the humorous part? (laughs) I'm losing my humor. Motherhood's too serious. No, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like that's such like an intimate, uh, those are intimate details, but um, I love the comparison between, as you were saying, like creating life and um, giving life to your work. Yeah. No, very, very well said. Yeah, you you give life to your baby or to human. You give birth and you give life and then you, the same thing happens when you make something. Um, so, yeah, in the studio, it, I, I mean, the Cooper Union in my studio, uh, I had these beautiful skylights and just beautiful diffused light was coming into my studio and I made these drawings that I feel really proud of and I mean I don't think I've seen imagery of pregnant people doing erotic things so I thought that was like new territory I mean I'm sure historically there's been 
there's paintings and there's stuff, but it's not common. And for me, I haven't really seen it. So I thought it was interesting territory to explore. And then also the humorous parts come in because then I added like pearls as, as these kind of strings of pearls going through vaginal forms and then pregnant bodies. So it's, there's, I, hopefully there's still some humor in, in the new work because it's, it's important to me. I think it's a, it's a way that I, uh, connect to my kind of California attitude being like, like lighthearted and not taking yourself too seriously. And humor is a, a big part of like my California side, my California spirit. So I like to make sure that's there. Could you talk about these new, uh, three dimensional pieces? Oh yeah. That's just, uh, the first sculpture I've ever made. Oh. Um, I don't know if I'm going to continue to make them. Uh, it, it's part of a show I was asked to participate in uh, through Fisher Parish. Show they invited a, a lot of artists to make an object, and the idea or the theme of the show is, you know, make an object that you find essential, whatever that means to you. Is it essential to you in terms of your spirituality? Is it a ritualistic object? Is it a functional object? There were certain um, parameters. You only could it only could be ten by ten inches, so it had to be a small object. It had to be completely made by you. So I kind of enjoyed these these guidelines because I would not know where to start. Mm-hmm. I'm not a sculptor at all. Uh, so I went for it. I started with a drawing that I made years ago. Uh, and I made, I just took that drawing and I made it into a three dimensional form. So I made a drawing of a plate, mm-hmm. like a decorative plate. I don't know if you guys, if you remember that one, do, it's called yeah. Tulip Erotica. So I, that drawing actually started when I went to a flea market in Los Angeles and I found a plate of a naked woman riding a horse <laughs> on top of it. <laughs> it was like a painted plate. And it just, it like changed my world for some reason. It's like plates, plates, decorative plates. And this woman's naked on a horse on a plate. I bought it. It's in my studio. She's around. She's never going anywhere. So I became obsessed with this idea of like drawing and painting images of plates hanging on walls. And I was obsessed with that cast shadow that happens, or I am obsessed with that cast shadow that happens when you hang a plate on the wall. Etc. So I decided, hey, I'll just make the plate mm-hmm. in physical form. So I started with air dry clay, and then I papered my shade on top of it. I don't know why I did that. I probably didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> and then I used the foil and created. I uh, sculpted the foil into uh, this kind of sinuous tulip form. Weaved it through the center of the plate, and anyways, and then I painted it. Uh, it was really fun, to be honest, because I didn't put a lot of pressure on it. I'm, I've never worked in three dimensions before, so there weren't that many expectations. And there was a lot of doubt when I was making it, I'm going to be honest. But in the end, I'm pretty happy with it. But I, I missed drawing when I was making it. So I'm, uh, I'm, not, sh- I'm not sure if I'm going to like start a new series, but people seem to like it. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll start making plates. 
Yeah. I know. I was going to say that that would be like really interesting and like new, like a different approach to, you know, your work, like creating or like producing plates. I know. I, <laughs> I should. Like, I, should. Yeah. <laughs> I think that'd be so cool. What if they were like wooden plates that I carved into? I mean, there's so much potential oh. there, plates yeah, in general. Definitely. So, my, I don't know if you guys know this piece at the Met, but there's this plate. Okay, there's an artist named Bernard Palassi. Mm-hmm. And he made, he's famous for this pastoral pottery that he made, I want to say in the 16th century. 17th century I'm not quite sure I should know that I'm bad I don't anyways there's this object at the Met that's my favorite object there basically and it's a ceramic plate high relief and it's of like sea creatures have you guys seen that Um, I'm actually looking it up right now (laughs) Bernard Palassi it's a follower of his it's actually not his work because he doesn't have very much work left Apparently it was destroyed or lost, but there is a group, there are a group of, there were a group of artists who followed his type, his like approach to ceramics. And he made these like platters, he called them platters. And he would actually take real live specimens or I don't know if they were alive or dead, but he would make, he would make molds of them. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And it's just this crazy platter of like sea life. Mm Mm-hmm. And it sits on this little stand, and I ran into it at the Met one day years ago, and I thought it was the strangest thing I've ever seen and so delightful to look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're beautiful. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, like, surprising. It's, like, he was, like, a – it's just unusual to see – I mean, I'm familiar with, like, painted plates and imagery that's flat, you know, lying down or lying on a plate. But the idea of, like, a relief plate – it's just surprising. I was surprised on it. The texture is beautiful. It's it's gorgeous, and I, and I definitely do see like the similarities between this and not that it's like the same, but uh, just like the inspiration you've you've drawn from it. It's it's really cool. Yeah. So maybe this is a new thing. I mean, I can make small plates at my kitchen table out of air dry clay. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Nothing larger than 10, 10 inches long. Um, yeah, I mean, I it made me paint again. I haven't painted in a long time. I thought about, originally my plan was to lay pastel ground on top of these, the sculpture and then draw on top of it with pastels, oh. which is something I still could do. I mean, definitely not archival. But who cares? <laughs> I think that could be an interesting project. That does sound really interesting. That sounds cool. Yeah. Like pastels on three-dimensional objects. Crazy. Well, Might do it. it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to maybe switch gears a little. Um, so how do you feel about, like, um, you know, the art world's kind of, like, shifting, you know, and everyone's having to embrace more of a digital approach. Um, how do you feel like about just like artwork that's just like simply online or, you know, because, or a limited amount of people can see it, you know, it's, it feels like things will be like a little different for. When you, you say know. limited, you mean more limiting than 
people accessing galleries and museums, like the public? Yeah, like the public coming and seeing a gallery show will be like a little different now where you can't really come as you go. Do you think, I, I think it might be easier for the public to access art via social media. I'm not sure. Um, it's more convenient, I guess, for people to just go on their phone and look. Mm -hmm. But is it the same experience as, as seeing something in, the, in a physical way? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I, think there's a, I think there's a big loss there, to be honest. I think there's a lot of opportunity to adapt and uh, respond creatively to this new reality that we're in. Um, but I do think there's a sense of loss because when you see something on a flat screen, obviously it's extremely different than when you see it in real life. You can't back away from it and get close to it. You can't move to the side of the, you know, the painting to see how the paint is applied. The light isn't shifting at all ever online. It's just, it just stays the same. Um, if you're not, you know, you're in a museum, you're at the Met, you're looking at a, um, Monet, like if you move to the left or right or move back or forward, the painting looks completely different. And the scale, we're going to, we're losing scale completely. And painting is all about scale. So that's a big loss as well. But I do think I'm, I do think the artists are equipped to uh, adapt quickly to the changes because we ha we are industrious. Uh, we already th have to think outside the box. We already are um, always being kept on our toes because we're doing something that provides absolutely no stability. So we're kind of used to that, I think, anxiety of like shifting worlds, right? Like sh everything's always shifting. Like you could, even if, you know, let's say you're an artist and you're making work and you're selling your work. I mean, the next month you could not be selling anything and people can forget about you. So I feel like we're used to this idea of instability. We're used to the idea of having to be industrious, use our resources, use what we have to make what we can. Um, we, I think artists are brilliant people in general, so we're able to, we're, we're smart so we can like <laughs> respond in a smart way. So I think that like, that's exciting. And it's been interesting to watch how young curators especially are responding to this and getting in, in creating virtual spaces, virtual shows. I mean, within like overnight they've adapted. Mm -hmm. It's impressive. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I think there's a great loss. And I think the conversations that happen when you're at openings or in spaces, I don't really like openings, but what I do love to do is I go to, I love going to shows or uh, museums with friends and standing in front of work with a close friend of mine and just talking about what we're seeing is my favorite thing to do. Um, and there, that doesn't happen in the virtual world, really. So there's another loss there. I guess I, I have no idea. I, I hope the art world can um, survive this.
Um, I know artists will. But the art world or like the market, I'm not sure. What do you think? Um, I mean, there's been so much fluctuation, you know, the last, what, a hundred years or so in terms of the market and certain historical situations Mm -hmm. that I feel like, yeah, it'll probably take some time, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it does feel like a very dark time now. Um, kind of like early 2000s a little bit. So, um, yeah, I think it'll just take time to adjust, but I mean, you know, the, the difference maybe is just like having one people, like one person come at a time, you know, and see your work. Oh, I see. So like not giving up the physical experience of looking or the in-person experience of looking, but just, just minimizing the amount of people looking at one time. Yeah. So yeah, maybe it'll be uh, more intimate in that way. Um, Ooh, that's a good perspective. I like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, it's, it's we'll see what happens with uh, the shows and the fairs, museums as well. So yeah. I know. I feel like it's it's something that you know people want and people need, and and really you know art in general. People, although you know sometimes it's not always given like the most respect. It, it people need it. They they need they need to be around creative. Oh, at least I do. I need to be around creative people, and and um and I and I really feel like art is so important to all of us that um I feel like you know different businesses, different galleries will adjust and, and, um, they'll, they'll have to, there's like no doubt about it. They'll have to, to survive. Yeah. I do think art is absolutely essential. Uh, without it, what would we have? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, art predates written language. I teach an art appreciation course. And according to what I know, the, the oldest cave painting well, it's always changing, right? They're always finding new cave paintings or new ancient artwork. Um, but it predates written language by 30,000 years. Wow. <laughs> so this idea of like man, woman, wanting to see oneself outside of oneself, you know, on a wall in an image, in an image is very old. I mean, it's, it, it's really important. Um, it's a way of understanding our surroundings, bringing us closer to the world around us. So I think that says something. It definitely does. It's um, I think it's important. I feel, in, I feel like the work I'm making right now means a lot more to me than ever before. Wow. Because of what's happening in the world, because I'm, and also because of, um, this is the first time in my life where I don't have time because I have a little baby and I feel like I said earlier, extremely desperate to make, and I've never felt this sense of urgency ever. Mm. So I feel extremely connected to what I'm making when I make it because it's so precious. The time that I have to make is so precious and I feel so grateful for it that and then, and then I'm 
thinking about how important and how beautiful it is to be able to make to to have I mean it's also privileged extremely privileged to have time to make art during a time like this <laughs> it just feels really dramatic you know like <laughs> making art feels very dramatic right now <laughs> like theatrical in a way you know it, it feels yeah different it absolutely feels different I think it's the combination of motherhood and then the pandemic that is just uh making the work feel very personal and I don't have the art world voices in my head right now because I don't care anymore and I think that's really liberating I think when I left New York like they became more muted like they're whispers and now they're just like completely silent I that was the one thing I really looked forward I miss New York every day and it's been very traumatic to leave and I still am kind of coming to terms with it but coming out west and coming to the west uh, near and living near the pacific coast and coming back to my home has given me the opportunity to not care as much and I think it's been a good thing for me I've let I've let go and although the voices in my head have been turned off somewhat and I feel uh, freedom out here. And I think it's spatially, I have a lot more freedom. There's like, her, I can see horizon lines, the sky's bigger, the ocean's there, very close to where I live. Uh, so it's like physically, there's a lot more space. And then I think that filters into the brain. And psychologically, there's a lot more space. I think that's why a lot of people move out west for those reasons, creative people. Do you feel more inspired in your new environment? I wouldn't say I feel conflicted in my new environment. I, I conflicted. I do feel inspired when I'm out in nature, but the every day is not so inspiring. That's when I miss city life in New York because they the the surprise like the 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 idea of like you know walking outside your door and being surprised by what you see every day in New York City or being always kind of engaged with your surroundings um, is something that just doesn't exist in a small town outside of a city. It's a little bit mundane and quiet and subdued. But that being said, that subdued experience, I think, allows me to kind of uh, have room to, to daydream more and to relax and I think that creates a lot more space to make. I'm not as distracted. That's an easier way of putting it. I'm definitely not as distracted. It's, I love how you, um, you've said daydream a couple of times. And I really feel like, I mean, for me, I think your work is like a daydream. It's Oh, that's nice. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think that connection to daydreaming the subconscious surrealism and then just entering this kind of imaginary alternate world where rules are to be broken is kind of what where I, I try to go in my work I want to break the rules whatever they are I think it definitely shows <laughs> <laughs> and for for some reason like you know, sensuality and all of that is breaking the rules. So that 
that's why I think I, I make the work I make. What was the uh, LA uh, art world or the galleries? Like, what was your experience with them versus kind of like the New York scene um, or and how like was interacting with the community? How did that differ? So my, my first experience with the LA art world was when I went, when I did a residency in East LA in 2014, it was after I graduated Hunter. It was, remember that terrible, or was it 2015? I don't remember. Remember the longest winter ever and the, it never ended. <laughs> I mean, I think it was 2015. Am I correct? Yes. I 2015. So. Yeah. Or it was like a vortex after it was just never ending. And I was dying because I'm not used to that at all. I could not handle it. And it, I was having the postgraduate blues. I was completely depressed and just needed to get out. So I found this like unknown residency in East LA where I basically lived in this like little garage and made, <laughs> and made paintings and um, they provided nothing but just a place to stay and paint. Um, I wouldn't say it's like the best experience, but it, it gave me access to the LA art world. And that's why I went to, I wanted to figure it out or experience it. Um, what I noticed is what the first thing I noticed about the LA art scene is that it's very casual. So that's something I really respond to as a native Californian. California casualness is just, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> It's a different, it's like everything is just like five, like 10 decimals. I don't know if that's how, the best way to describe it, like below New York where like, I mean, people talk slower, right? You go to an opening, you smell weed. There's food offered at openings that I thought was, which I thought was fantastic. And like little kids running around and it was just like, it's, it has a much more like mellow, chill vibe but it's still pretentious I mean it's still the art world there's still people there who are you know trying to rub elbows with the right person and trying to, all that stuff like it's it's still there but it's but it's kind of there's a relaxed air that I really enjoyed because that was what I struggled with um in New York was kind of trying to fit into the art scene was hard for me because I didn't really feel like I could talk the talk or when I first went to um, when I first started my MFA program I thought I sounded I thought I was like this California bimbo who had no idea what she was talking about and who was just kind of (laughs) silly which I think (laughs) made me stand out in a way and then I started to like really um you know, embrace that attitude and, and that kind of persona and it, it aided me. And then I think people, I started making work about it and it like, it was like kind of a gift, but when I'm here, I don't, I feel now that I've spent time in New York, like I feel like I'm the kind of pretentious snob out here, you know, trying to like talk conceptually about the work on the wall where Californians are like, dude, just look at it. We don't have to talk about it. They're like, you're so brainy, Maureen. I'm like, I'm just talking about the work. Like, I'm not even brainy. I'm just, let's talk. Nope. Don't want to talk. I guess that's why, like, New Yorkers and Californians are shallow. I mean, they kind of are. Not going to lie. Pretty shallow. But I enjoy it. Um, 
I think there are people who are taking a lot of risks in Los Angeles because the history is so small there, I guess. I mean, there is a long history of artists being in, in Los Angeles, but it's not like New York. You don't have like, you know, the idea of like de Kooning in his studio as you're in your studio making, trying to make paintings. You don't, you, that like, I don't, your, your subconscious is not so present. It's not for me, at least. I feel like everything kind of feels new and you can kind of just do what you want. It's like the, you know, like the new, it feel, still feels like, like the new frontier or the last frontier where you could just, you know, I, I think the craziest artists are from California who have left the East coast or other parts of the U S to, to, for personal, to discover, to find personal freedom. So I feel like that spirit is still alive in Los Angeles. There's also more space and it's cheaper. I mean, that's changing. It's probably getting more expensive now. And it also feels very young. Um, how is your experience at, at Hunter? Um, and I think if I remember correctly, you started off in like the old building and then went, went to the new building. Mm -hmm. The old building was amazing. Yeah, it was completely disgusting it was <laughs> like it smelled weird it was like falling apart um there were cockroaches in the bathroom or what do they call them water bugs what's the difference tell me is there a difference I don't know. Uh, maybe water bugs are smaller. I don't, I don't really know. They're all, <laughs> aren't they cockroaches? I mean, the roaches are roach. They're like, Marine, those are water bugs. I was like, no, those are not. They're not cute. I don't care if they're water bugs. They're disgusting. Yeah, people were wild in that building. We had parties. We would smoke, drink in there at night. It was just, you could just do whatever you wanted. It was messy. It was in a really terrible part of Times Square or Hell's Kitchen. It was just kind of scuzzy. And I think uh, we really liked that. We liked it because we were able to just be messy and, and, and it didn't feel like a proper MFA program because of the environment we were in. It was strange. And I mean, we were, we have like le lecture courses and weird carpeted office rooms that were just completely dated and had like wood paneling on the walls. And it was just, you were just always in these, we were, like some of my friends had strange studios on the top floor. Some of my friends like broke into rooms that were um, abandoned and broke into them and made big studios out of them. Wow. <laughs> on the, like so the cool. top floor and it looked over Times Square. It was just, it was just this kind of, monolith of a building that was scary looking on the outside so that was my experience when I moved to New York and I would walk through um, Times Square to get there that's intense <laughs> yeah uh, and then you then we moved to so the canal and Hudson thing. yeah yeah Hudson Hudson and it complete the environment the hunter program completely changed because the building was brand spanking new and uh office like feeling and no the common spaces got really small there weren't very large there were small like kitchenettes but we couldn't gather anymore in large groups mm. studios got um significantly smaller 
the one amazing thing that happened is we had central AC. Oh, wow. <laughs> in the old building, there were there was no AC, and we would just fry. We couldn't, we couldn't work in all summer long. I mean, it was like a death trap. Uh, it was toxic to be there in there with like paints, you know, in the middle of the winter and I mean, sorry, middle, middle of summer. And it was just fumy and, and bad. Uh, so we, we got central AC. So that changed things for the better. But other than that, I think the spirit of Hunter completely shifted. Um, but it was the best, I'd say it was the best experience. One of the best experiences of my life. I love that program. Great. Wow. <laughs> and all, yeah, the community that comes from that program is significant because it's such a large program that you can choose your family versus being put in a small program where you maybe only like several people. When you leave Hunter, you leave with like 50 people you really like. The rest you like toss aside. But you 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 leave with like this massive family that just looks out looks out for you forever. I mean, Hunter is still giving back to me. And I'm in California now all the time. It's amazing. And it's not, I think it's less competitive because of the size of the program. Uh, so people aren't really, there's competition, but it's not like what I've, I think with a smaller program, you've got too much tension, too much, you know, the, there's not a lot of opportunity to kind of find your crew and then you're stuck with people you don't want to listen to and you have to listen to them for several years. And at Hunter, you can kind of avoid that. And uh, people are really supportive there. It's a supportive environment, and I thrived. I miss I miss my community. <laughs> you can tell. It's it. There's a lot of advantages about being in California, but it's been extremely painful for me to not be near my hunter folks because they're extremely supportive. And my art artist identity was formed in New York. And I want to say my adult identity, if that makes sense, was also formed in New York. But my spirit is Californian. And like the essence of who I am is Californian. So now I'm this hybrid and I'm kind of confused because they're really different. Mm -hmm. There's like totally different sides coming together. And I'm now I'm a little confused. Like, where should I be? Because I feel deeply connected to New York City, deeply connected to my community. That's where I became who I am today. But then my body, my soul, like belongs here. And my brain belongs in New York. <laughs> I was gonna say you have that New York uh, mind, like the mindset, but then you have like the California heart. Yeah. So I, I'm just <laughs> never gonna sit comfortably in the world. It's just never going to happen. Because <laughs> when I'm in New York, I want to be here. When I'm here, I want to be in New York. So I'm screwed. Oh. I remember I went to, like, do you guys know Catherine Murphy? Murphy? Um, Matthew? No, I don't think so. She's a hyper-realist painter. She teaches at Yale. She's amazing. I'll have to send you some of, I think you'll like her work. Anyways, I went to her lecture many years ago, and she did say something that has always stuck with me. She said, artists do not sit comfortably in the world. You are very right, Catherine. I always like her. Her name's Kathy. I, I, I think that's so true. That's why we are who we are. That's why we can't are impulsively making and never happy and insatiable and uncomfortable. 
So maybe that's just my artist identity. I'm just never going to be comfortable (laughs) wherever I am. Uh, what was like the one of the more memorable and recent shows that that you've seen? Um, that... Well, I visited New York for specific shows the last several years. Obviously, the Helm Auckland show was amazing, transformational to see. But I want to say there was a Magritte show at the SF MoMA several years ago that I absolutely loved. Wow. It was a huge retrospective and he had a lot of frames. They were like Baroque frames and different types of frames, but he framed some of his works. I responded to that. It was interesting to see work I've never seen like earlier work of his, um, yeah, I, I just haven't seen Magritte in a concentrated way before. And it was a big show, and I just loved walking through it and seeing works I've always always seen, you know, in books or on, online and seen in, in real life for the first time. It was fantastic, and he just was really smart. Um, and a good painter, too. I liked being able to see the surface and how he painted. and So that, that show really stands out. Um, I also liked seeing, hmm, well, I'm looking at a book right now that is of the Agnes Pelton show or the catalog for the show at the Whitney that's being held hostage, right? Do you guys know her work? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing it in the Biennial, yeah. So this, like, desert painter, mm-hmm. she, well, I love her story, of course, because she leaves New York, she moves to California to the desert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and paints in obscurity for her, you know, for the rest of her life. Relatively unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking at her catalog a lot right now, and she, her paintings feel completely surprising. Like I haven't seen imagery like this ever. Yeah, I remember like getting off the elevator and like seeing the painting. I was just kind of like, what is this? <laughs> like so idiosyncratic, so um, like visionary in a way. Um, and then also based in her experience living in the desert and looking out at that landscape and then, abs- and then painting like the spiritual response she had to the landscape and there's a there's interesting relationships too like figure ground figure ground relationships but then she has like symbols she was um playing with a lot of different languages bringing them together but they feel really sincere very much of her own psyche and i mean similar to hilma in a sense where like she had these kind of visions but they just feel really fresh not derivative and very much her own, which I think is a really hard thing to do. And it, it, maybe it does help, you know, to move to the desert and to leave the art world and just do your thing. Mm. Um, so I'm looking at her work a lot and reading about her. But yeah, I want to say the Magritte show. I loved it. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, I res- I think about when, you know, that um, bumper sticker, or that phrase or the people when people say what would jesus do yeah like wwjd <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, like do people wear a bracelet? I'm remembering in like a long time ago, it was like a, mm-hmm. maybe a bracelet. I see a bumper sticker sometimes. When I'm in my studio, I, I ask myself, what would Magritte do? <laughs> <laughs> So, WWMD. I, I, I think about Magritte in my studio a lot. So it was just like good timing that it came to San Francisco right when I moved here. Um, it was also grounding to like see that show. Like, okay, I can still see you know important sh- work shows and not be in New York. That's been the other really painful thing about not being in new york anymore is missing shows it's like I, it's like taking a knife and twisting it in my gut when i like miss a show like i've missed mm-hmm. i missed um hockney at the met oh yeah i don't even want to think about it like i want to cry <laughs> like they're because that's that's you know the there's i've gone to shows that have changed my life mm-hmm. and they have they're in new york when most of the shows are in new york and how do you go on not seeing those shows anymore? I guess you just see new shows somewhere else. I don't know, but it just feels like a huge loss sometimes. Yeah. Well, sometimes I travel to, to LA. Sometimes yeah. I travel. Yeah. And I think more things, I'm hoping more things come to Los Angeles and come out here. Mm-hmm. Um, so this show of Agnes Felton's work started at the Phoenix art museum and is now at the Whitney. So hopefully we'll, I mean, pandemic's changing everything, but maybe one day, It'll make its way out here. Mm-hmm. It should make its way out to the desert in California where it was made. That'd be amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm probably missing a really big show and I can't think about it right now. I My brain is half. I have a half a brain now. I, I have not slept for six months. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. So the sleep deprivation it's probably, you know, like you just, and maybe it's like freeing me when I make work because you're so tired that you can't like, you can't fret about anything. You just like do. Wow. You just do it. Uh-huh. So I think that's what's happening. Wow. <laughs> Not, no, no fretting. I'm just doing. In the past, did you like overthink everything? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like does this work look too much like so-and-so's or does this mark or just kind of going through a range of insecure feelings and, or it would take me like hours to like make a mark or make myself do something. And now there's just no time to fret. Mm -hmm. There's this, there's like, I think motherhood, like in some ways it, it totally takes all your time away, which is, incomprehensible before I became a mom I didn't realize how much time I would never have again um but you have this like crazy urge to when you have time to make it count so like everything counts now where before I just like there was nothing like I'm more I think I'm more productive now than I was before because I had endless time before so I abused it and I didn't cherish it and now I have that limited time and I really cherish it and I make shit happen. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Ezra. That's my son's name. Oh, yes. Such a beautiful name. We look so at cute. art books together. <laughs> Thank you. We look at art books together. He likes to look at abstractions because they, they see like high contrast. And so we look at um, 
abstract work a lot and yeah we'll see what he turns out to be but that's so cute thank you (laughs) thank you I I do have a question about um your paintings I, I noticed that there was you know the this the ocean and is that kind of like a homage to um where you are now or um Uh in the sense of like where you live like your location um because it it does seem to be like a running theme um yeah so that that lands that is kind of landscape space in the background um of like the beach and the water is definitely a response to coming home and being next to the Pacific ocean again. I grew up about like eight minutes away from the coast. Um, I don't live, I didn't live on the coast, but I could hop in my car and be at my favorite beach in eight minutes. So the Pacific ocean, I would say is like my first row is my first romance. My, because, yeah. I like, I, I love the Pacific coast, but it's different than the Atlantic ocean. I mean, I'm not super familiar with the Atlantic ocean, but it's just, it's got a different feeling out here. It's pretty aggressive in a lot of ways. Like it's a force. It's not like you can just like bob around in the ocean and not like deal with waves. Like there's always a current. There's always wait. There are always waves, and and it's it's kind of I've been pulled out and caught in uh, the current a couple times, and it's it's something to kind of you have to respect in a way, and. Uh, it's just something that actually drew me back here was just the idea of being close to the coast again. And um, I think the landscape is entering my work because of this, the physical, the kind of openness of the space around me, right? Where in New York, everything's enclosed. I felt like I couldn't see the sky and the buildings, you know, just tower over you and you're always in these small cramped spaces, subway apartments, railroad apartments, you know, everything's small, compact. And out here it's just openness. And so I wanted to put that openness back in, or into the work. Uh, and there's a rock formation that keeps appearing in the, in the landscapes. And that's actually a rock um, in my home, it's a, it's, it's an actual rock formation in, in my hometown. It's called Moral Rock, or it's a depiction of Moral Rock, which is an ancient volcanic neck. And it's just strange, like, rock that sits right off the coast, and it looks completely otherworldly because it's not, it's like not, it's like too, it's this weird scale. Like, it's not, it's small-ish, but it's like too big to be small, but it's too small to be big. And um, it looks strange, and I've always loved it. My uh, uncle was an artist, and every time he visited San Luis Obispo, which is where I'm from, he would draw that rock. So I grew up with these soft pastel drawings, uh, plein air drawings of the rock throughout my house, and now I'm drawing it with pastels. That's amazing. <laughs> but I'm placing that rock inside of vulva, which is a totally different approach. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that rock is real. And when you guys come out here one day, I'm going to show you the rock. (laughs) I actually wanted to ask you like how, um, excuse me, um, how you decided to become an artist. And and, and right now you just mentioned your uncle. Do do you feel like he was really, uh, kind of, he showed, I don't know if he showed you, but do you think that was like kind of an influential moment or? He was actually like 
the person that deterred me from wanting to be an artist. (laughs) (laughs) He was like the, you know, the representation of like a failed, lonely artist. Mm. He like, and, and my family, my grandfather was terrified that I would become an artist. He didn't want me to become an artist. He didn't want me to be like Uncle Bob. My Uncle Bob was really strange. He uh, didn't really talk to us. When he came over, he would just draw our portraits. We only saw him once a year for Christmas time, and that's when he would go make those plein air drawings of Moral Rock. Um, And he lived in squalor, I I think. I, uh, I never saw where he lived. He lived like in outside of LA, I want to say in the Valley. Anyways, very obscure character. So I fought being an artist a lot of my life. It wasn't, it wasn't encouraged. Um, and then I didn't actually become an art major until I was like 23 years old. And I was at San Francisco state and I was like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I walked by an art studio class and I was like, fine. I got to do it. I can't resist this anymore. Cause I was just like aimlessly going to school with no plan. And then I just caved and I, I went full, like fully in. And I met a professor at San Francisco state named then Danielle Maslaviak who said, Hey, have you ever thought about New York? Have you ever thought about getting your MFA? Go to Hunter. I never even heard, had heard of Hunter before. So that changed my life. Then I went to Hunter. So yeah, I resisted it. Uh, not from a family of artists. Everyone's in the medical field and has a practical life. <laughs> My grandpa was begging me, like, before he died, like, don't become an artist. That would be terrible. So. <laughs> I think it's really interesting when uh, you have, like, a really good professor or someone that can kind of steer you in the right direction and and how, like, he encouraged you to go to Hunter and, you know, you took that leap and, and you moved to New York. Yeah. It just takes one person. And I, now I'm a professor and I hear myself telling my students to go to New York. That's amazing. (laughs) So I'm like, you know what? You got to go to New York. I tell them all. If you have any, I, I, um, advise graduate students at CCA Mm. and, there are several of them in there that really want to get out and I suggest to go to New York or I encourage them. They already want to go. And I just say, don't even think about it. Just go. <laughs> and I think one of them already went. So um, yeah, I'm now I'm that person showing, you know, the California student that there's another world out there. That's amazing. Mm. Maureen. Passing the baton. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, of course. Sharing yeah, your thank life. You. And, um, and thank you so much for uh, being like taking the time out of your day. I know you're, you're really busy um, to oh, you know, spend so time with us and, and talk about your work and your life and the transitions you're going through. Um, it's, it's really beautiful. And I, I hope that other people really learn from your experience and, um, and get to know you a little better and, you know, you know, follow, follow Maureen, (laughs) follow her work and, um, 
Thank you. Yes, thank you. Of course. Um, and well, I enjoyed every minute of it. It's nice to be reflective. Have the opportunity to talk about your process and where you came from and who you are and what you're doing. It's a really, it's a gift to have that opportunity. So thank you for wanting to listen to me. Oh, of course. <laughs> I can listen to you all day, Maureen. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know about that. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. So nice to hear your voices. Thank you so much. Bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye.